0: Welcome to Listen Up America, a show about the truth, opinions, and thinking. A constitutional, conservative podcast in a world of woke cancel culture. We are the resistance. Welcome to Listen Up America. I'm your host, Eric. And on this week's episode, uh, I've referred to in the past about how journalism died in 1968. And I'm going to give you a history lesson and some information about what happened back in 68, what led to it, and what's happened since. So let's start off with the day journalism died. The date was February 27th, 1968. And you might be thinking, gosh, that is awfully specific. There's an actual day. In my opinion, there's an actual day that... Journalism in this country died and forever changed the outlook of journalism for the world as it has spilled over. And you got things like CNN now, and it's can be viewed anywhere in the world. And you got Al Jazeera and the BBC and things like that. And if you're from that part of the world, you could probably relate and go, well, gosh, 20, 30, 40, depending on how old you are 40, 50, 60 years ago, you had a perspective of media and journalism then, and how it is now. So, February 27th, 1968, what happened? America's most trusted newsman, Walter Cronkite. This is Walter Cronkite. He was with CBS News, and he developed a reputation of being a very trustworthy, shoot straight at you, just tell you exactly what was going on. And before 1968, he would give you information for you to decide on your own. And that's what made him the most trusted and most viewed news personality in the country. Walter Cronkite was the one that went on air when JFK was assassinated and the world turned to Channel 2 because the other channels were kind of scrambling around. Um, they had people there and were reporting. And uh, they were able to get access to the hospital and get the information. So he was able to deliver to the world. Uh, you can go on YouTube and watch it in black and white that Walter Cronkite announced that the president, John F. Kennedy, had been killed. Um, the next thing he did was uh, the moon landing. And if you see any old clips of him back in the day, uh, he actually broke down on set emotionally. Tears of joy would be the best way to put it. He was so proud of his country and what it had just accomplished that we just put a man on the moon. In this case, two men, third sat in the in the spacecraft while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went for a walk. From there, though, it changed. Vietnam was going. It was being uh, built up by John F. Kennedy by sending in advisors, military advisors, and the like. CIA and so forth into Vietnam before we had decided to make Vietnam a war. And then of course, Kennedy was killed. It's handed over to Lyndon Johnson, who was the vice president. Lyndon Johnson, uh, good old boy from Texas. He was special. If you want to know anything about Lyndon Johnson, um, just a racist. (laughs) I mean, the guy was totally against civil rights and, uh, he was, he said some really lovely things. But he's the president, and uh, he takes over, as he always put it, this bag of crap that Kennedy gave him with the Vietnam situation. Says, we're sending troops in. We're going to war in Vietnam. And for those that don't know, the premise behind going to Vietnam was to stop the invasion of communism into Southeast Asia. Russia and China were spreading like a plague, and we were the only ones who were going to stand up. So we did. And uh, you know, after Korea in the fifties, you know, we're now in the mid sixties, nineteen sixty-five, and we're looking at another conflict. This one in Southeast Asia. So Johnson deployed troops, and for the first couple of years, uh, the escalation, the buildup, we went from you know fifty thousand to hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand. I believe the peak was over five hundred thousand troops in Southeast Asia, and they were given an impossible task. The soldiers, the airmen, the sailors, the Marines, they were not allowed to fight the war as they were trained and as their predecessors fought in Korea in World War II and in World War I and so forth. Things were changing. A lot of rules were being put on them. Can do this, can't do that. Can go here, can't go there. You can bomb this, but no, 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 no. You cannot bomb any of that up there. And you're coming off of a war in Korea from 50 to 53. You've got World War II that went from – well, depending if you're from Europe, it was going on from 1939 all the way to 1945. America joined it 42-43 at that point. Um, So you have to take in perspective how wars were fought. For example, in World War II, they would send up B-17s five, six, seven, eight hundred of them, fly them over Germany, open their bomb bay doors, and drop thousands upon thousands upon thousands of bombs on a city. Boom. Blow it away. Sometimes they use incendiary bombs. Okay, An incendiary bomb is just that. It is the ground. It's like loaded with fuel. It would explode and catch everything around it on fire. We did it in Japan. We did it in Germany. And uh, I believe the... Uh, most famous was either Tokyo or um, Dresden. That the fire killed more than the actual bombs did. So we went from that to, now we're going to North Korea. Same thing. Now we've got B-29s. Um, this is the same plane that dropped the atom bomb on Japan twice. So now we've got this plane, which is superior, high altitude, the whole thing. Could go in and would just bomb the North. So North Korea would get pounded into oblivion. Then we go to Vietnam and it's like, okay, B-52s can go, but you can only bomb like the Ho Chi Minh Trail or you can go to this. You can't go into North Vietnam and God forbid you ever go to Hanoi. And at this point, early in the war, with all the restrictions, uh, communist North was able to equip itself with Russian-made land-to-air missiles and they would shoot down our aircraft. You know, the classic any aircraft guns. Somebody sits in it and they're loading it and going bang, 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 throwing shots in the air. Um, still not very effective, especially when you got jets flying Mach 2. It's, it's pure luck if you hit anything. But missiles, you can lock on and shoot them. But this was all of Johnson's doing. And McNamara, he was the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. He was a peach. These guys, uh, and they allowed Congress, and I say allow, they listened to the left, and uh, they were all gung-ho about the buildup, let's go, 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 and then they flip a switch. We'll see what happened in 1968 was Walter Cronkite, who had been in the battlefield as a war correspondent during World War II. He actually was there reporting on what the 101st Airborne uh, dealt with when it was either Operation Market Garden, which was trying to liberate Holland, and then also the Battle of the Bulge, which was in Bastogne. So uh, he had experience. He'd seen, you know, rather firsthand, maybe not up close of the battle part, but he saw the aftermath and so forth and and saw the soldiers and their experience. He was also one of a few correspondents that actually got to fly in a B-17 on a bombing raid. So he'd been there, he'd seen it. But he went to Vietnam in early 68. And that was around the same time that, Something happened. It was the uh, the New Year for Vietnam, and it was the Tet Offensive took place. Now, for those that don't know, but you're like, oh, yeah, Tet Offensive. That's where uh, North of Vietnam and uh, everybody came in and kicked our butt. Yeah, that didn't really happen like that. So what happened is basically North Vietnam shot its wad. It basically tried to pull a a a Battle of the Bulge. Let's send everything we got. And see if we can break them once and for all uh, as uh, they believe that they could get the American public to change its view. And up until this point, America and the citizens of America were very much, let's get the commies kind of thing. Now, the younger ones that uh, Johnson instituted the draft, you know, a lot of them were uh, not so pleased and burned their cards and all that stuff, took off for Canada. But you have to understand something. In Vietnam, everybody thinks, you know, if you talk to them, they're like, hey, Vietnam, that was the draft. Everybody was over there, was forced to serve. And that is not even close to true. Uh, A huge majority of the service people in Vietnam were volunteers. The Marine and the Army took draftees only because Lyndon Jones kept raising the numbers. But something like 85 to 90% were actual volunteers, not drafted. So you got to put that in perspective. So with that going on, Tet happens, and like I said, depending on who you listen to and what you read, if you if you listen to the media when this was going on, we just lost the war. What happened on the ground was American servicemen, Marines, Army soldiers, the Navy and the Air Force with their aircraft, they got hit, and the numbers were you know they never know, but it was between 50 and 150,000 North. Vietnamese come rushing down, hitting certain bases, and uh, the death toll was something about 1,500 guys were wounded or killed on our side, and we got about 100,000 plus of them. That was the reality of Ted. But if you were watching TV when Walter Cronkite went to visit Vietnam during this time, just coincidentally, by the way, that he was there when this went down, he reported on it when he got back. And what he should have said was something along the lines of his experience of war correspondence back in World War II. And today is very similar. You've got our young men out on the lines, fighting, surviving, engaging the enemy because they're ordered to, not because they wanted to. And for the the righteousness of saving Vietnam from communism to allow people who were joining us to fight in the South Vietnamese army, and we had intermingled units and so forth to build a society on freedom and democracy. But they didn't say that. He came back, and I could read it, but it's it's a couple of paragraphs. But basically what happened was uh Walter Cronkite went on air, the most trusted man in media. And he told the country we can't win. That he was there doing Tet and he completely misrepresented the impact of Tet. You know, it it wiped us out and Thousands were killed and injured and all that stuff, and it wasn't anything as dramatic as he ever laid out to. The U.S. servicemen in Vietnam in 68 kicked the crap out of North Vietnam to the point that they did not have an effective fighting force from that point forward. Now you're going to say, well, the war went on for a few more years. Yes, it did, because North Vietnam was basically gutted. And again, our troops weren't allowed to go into Hanoi just let's go. March, take the dang thing over. Let's end this thing. There was so many rules and you can't bomb this and you can't bomb that. And you can shoot this, but you can't shoot that. And it was a nightmare. It started spilling into Cambodia and West of Vietnam and the Khmer Rouge and things like that started attacking. And so we had to fight those guys. And then after a year or two, North Vietnam's army was able to build back up and so forth. But so when I were fighting multiple countries and enemies, but, we're still doing very well, but Walter Cronkite comes to America on your TV and tells you we can't win. He didn't give any information about what was going on. He just said through a couple of paragraphs to the American people that our only chance is to seek a peace and with with honor so that our people come home and they didn't they didn't lose it wasn't another Korea but When the government doesn't allow the appropriation of weapons and so forth to the South, and it gets worse after we're pulled out, and that was the Democrats in Congress. They were pulling the funds out. No, we're not gonna do this, not gonna do that. Now they started the war, now they're not gonna back their guy. Because Walter Cronkite supposedly had a meeting with his producer and general Creighton Abrams. If that name sounds familiar, especially the Abrams, yeah. He's the guy they named the tank after. See, he changed the perspective when he took over in '68. Um, they did a lot of uh, seek and destroy missions, going out and just wiping things out and villages and whatnots, and uh, looking for the VC, the Viet Cong. And uh, he changed the strategy uh, because he, you basically had to. The Pentagon and the White House were only going to tolerate so much. So he did the best he could, and with his direction. Wounded, killed in action, dropped dramatically. And we were able to hold ground, maintain ground, gain new support. But because Walter Cronkite of CBS News went on the air and told the country, we can't win. Everyone's opinion changed. Walter Cronkite says we can't win. Now, remember, their perspective of this to this point is, he gives you information and you figure out and decide, for yourself, he never told you what to think, he told you what went down and then you figured it out. Now he's telling you we can't win. He manipulated an entire country to the point that Lyndon Johnson was even reported as saying that if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost America. That's how powerful this guy was. And you look at today, how powerful is the media in manipulating agendas for anybody on the planet? If they want something done, They'll lie, cheat, and steal to get it done. And I've told you guys in past episodes, and I will tell you in future episodes, the media is lying to us almost every day, if not every day, every hour, because they've got bigger plans. And you're not part of it. So I always say, you know, listen to what they say, and then go find out the truth. Because someone knows the truth. But Walter Cronkite declared, that was it, we lose. And from that point, literally within weeks, the approval rating of the war and so forth changed dramatically. It basically did a 180. And then the protesting back home picked up so much so that, uh, in 68 at the democratic national convention, that's the famous one. Liberals went crazy and Cronkite was on the floor and so was Dan rather his future replacement and, uh, rather got beat up on the floor. You know, Cronkite called them thugs. I'm like, thugs, that's funny. These are his people. But the chaos that that conversation he had with America on February 27th, 1968 changed officially the outlook and the purpose of the media. And in this case, journalism as a whole. So now we continue on from there, right? Cronkite, he's starts fading away. You know, he's part of the seventies and so forth. But look who, look at the people that were on CBS and ABC and NBC, you had Dan Rather, right? And Dan Rather was just a two-bit hack. You might remember back uh, before Bush was elected. So this was like 99, 2000. He got fired for telling the country that George W. Bush, the second George, lied about his service, National Guard Service, all this stuff. I have documents he created. He didn't get. He created on his own documents about the president, and told the world on the media, on, on national TV, that George Bush, da 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 and he's a scumbag, and he didn't, and it was all a lie, and it got found out, because other people were going, this doesn't make any sense, and the president was like, you're not even close to right, and I'm gonna show you, da 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 he brought it, he had to defend himself against journalism, and journalists that are supposed to do this on their own, but no, like I said, my brother's uncle, sister's third brother's wife said, That's what we do now. It used to be first-hand reporting. Watergate. Everyone remember Watergate? Cronkite was a part of that. Rather was a part of that. Tom Brokaw, Sam Donaldson, they all were reporting on that. They had to get into it. They had to find people. Then there was uh, Deep Throat. You guys remember Deep Throat? Woodward and Bernstein from the Washington Post were digging around, trying to find information. And they found a person that knew more than most people and had evidence and paperwork and all that stuff. But he was only referred to as Deep Throat because they put him on TV and they blacked them all out and they put the microphone on and just, he talked super deep and no one could recognize the voice. That's what was going on. And you can see it evolving. And like I said, now we're up to, like I said, my cousin's brother's uncle's third wife said, and it gets ridiculous, anonymous. That's where we're at today. It's de-evolved. Truth is a casualty because I hate George Bush. So Dan Rather is going to lie about it. Sam Donaldson. I mean, this guy was no different. He and uh, Brokaw, they would smash heads with Reagan in the day. And it was never like what we just saw with how the media treats Chairman Joe. It's not like how they treated the Messiah, Obama they could do no wrong. You could just hear the angels in, in the background singing as they were asking a question of, gosh, those trousers look mighty nice on you today, Mr. President, thank you. I mean, that's journalism when a Democrat's in office. It's disgusting and so obvious. But when Reagan or Bush or Trump are in, they're the devil, they're stupid, they're gonna blow up the world, they have dementia. I mean, it just goes on. Everything's bad. They're horrible. Number of wars Reagan had us in. Zero. He had a weekend stop in Grenada. That was it. Cubans were spreading their wings and Reagan gave them a smack. Libya, don't cross the line. Don't cross the line of death. So Reagan sent the Enterprise, that's an aircraft carrier, into the line of death. And uh, Libya, Muammar Gaddafi in his youth, would send up some jets. We shot them down. Thanks for playing. You know, that was it. That was the extent of Reagan. Bush, Bush is different. He was not a conservative. Bush was, as we like to say these days, the swamp. But we were attacked. Did he attack who he should have? No. I don't think, I think we can all agree. Iraq had nothing to do with it. It was just revenge for him and his daddy to go finish the job. The people who actually did it were from Saudi Arabia in Afghanistan, but we can't do anything about the kingdom because we needed oil. Well, you know, Trump comes into office. You know, we're energy independent right now until they, you know, shut off the Keystone all this stuff. So now Democrats are forcing us to go back to the Middle East here sooner than later to buy more energy and oil. Great. We didn't need them for nothing. If Saudi Arabia got in line, we could smack Saudi Arabia. We could smack any of them. Behave yourself or else. And you notice nobody stood up and got all uppity when Trump was in there. They knew their place. Don't poke the bear. But the media would always play it out that he was a crazy man and the world didn't respect him. And I don't know if they respected him or not, but uh, they were not going to poke him or Ronald Reagan. Nobody wanted a piece of that. Reagan won the Cold War without firing a shot. Top that. But you got Donaldson and Brokaw and Rathers sitting there back in the 80s Like Reagan just, you know, couldn't do anything. I ran contra. You know, okay, you got that. So we're supplying weapons and doing, okay, whatever. We've been doing that forever. So does every other country out there. That's the best you got, please. You know, but Sam Donaldson, you know, the evolution of this, he was with ABC News. There was a joke made by George Bush. I'm gonna read it to you. So this is back in 2006 and it was at a White House press conference. And Sam Donaldson shouted, Mr. President, should Mel Gibson be forgiven? Now that's in reference to Mel's, had a bad day, I think he was a bit alcoholic back then. And uh, he said some some things that weren't very nice and very anti-Semitic actually. So President George Bush, he laughed and he looked up to see who would ask the question. Because remember, this was just a shout out. And Bush joked, is that Sam Donaldson? Forget it, you're a has-been. We don't have to answer has-been's questions. Now, Sam Donaldson was like 70 years old when this was going down. So, you know, he he was right to call this guy out. But here's Sam Donaldson in his reply. Better to have been a has-been than a never was. That's journalism. You get that? I mean, that's journalism. First, you ask a stupid question about Mel Gibson to the President of the United States. Because, what, you're hoping you'll say, well, I like Mel, and Mel's a great guy, and, you know, he just had a bad day, and, you know, what, because then you can claim that, look, Bush is anti-Semitic. I mean, is that what the plan was? Of all the questions you could have asked in 2006, terrorism's running around the, the planet, that's the question, Mel Gibson. Thanks for playing Sam Donaldson, you dipstick. You know, there was another thing about the guy. He got caught up. Oh, this guy—he's uh, a peach. You probably don't know. Start around 1995. Sam Donaldson. He owned farmland, and uh, he was receiving federal subsidies. He was an absentee uh, farmer. He was a part of the. Uh, he was mad because the Congress considered slashing the core subsidies, and affluent urban farmers come under scrutiny. This was him. He actually owned land. He—he he was taking in. It turned out it, was, it happened to be about almost $200,000 a year he took in, um, and being a millionaire, by the way, for his farm, that he was absent. He was never actually on the farm. But he was scamming, and he got caught. A year later, Donaldson was embroiled in another federal aid scandal. While still receiving his federal mohair subsidies, that's the original farm stuff, it was revealed that he was also using federal resources to kill prairie dogs, bobcats, foxes, coyotes on his ranch. His farm was reported to have used USDA's animal damage control agents 412 times over five years. So, you know, of course, deficit hawks are mad. Animal rights activists are mad. I mean, how do you like that? I mean, talk about the left and right coming together and going, I hate that guy. Sam Donaldson was a typical self-serving liberal scumbag. who had his only agenda was his own power and wealth. <laughs> Sound familiar? And screw everybody. It's like we owed the guy. What do you think of Mel Gibson? What do I think of you? You're a clown. So here you go. It's evolving. Then you get Tom Brokaw, NBC News. NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw. So you got Rather Donaldson, Brokaw. They're all banging against each other, fighting for ratings. Peter Jennings is coming into this fold. See all these names? going. Yep, I remember that douchebag too. Yeah. No credibility to anyone that had a brain in their head but if you smoked pot well these guys were the smartest people you ever knew because from what i hear i don't do drugs never have done drugs so i don't know but it's like everyone's talks about that has done pot it's like yeah you gotta watch c-span banked man i'm like i can't watch it sober so i guess that's the only way to do it um okay but tom brokaw you know this guy Same thing. He was no different than the rest. They all had to outdo each other on air and had to be more over the top than the other guy because it was all about ratings. It was all about money. All about fame. So Tom Brokaw, Atlanta, Olympics, the bombing, Richard Jewell, that name sound familiar? Yeah, Brokaw went on air and just said he was guilty and was going to be arrested. Literally said he's guilty and he's going to be arrested. Richard Jewell didn't do anything except try to save people's lives. He was the Forrest Gump of security guards. I mean, he wasn't the brightest guy, but he had a great heart and he tried to save lives. But Tom Brokaw wasn't gonna have it because the story of he was bombing the Atlanta games, got everyone watching NBC News for a couple of days till it came out and <laughs> that's a lie. The FBI never told him, never said anything about, never said he, nothing. They just made it up and tried to ruin the man's life. And to a point they did. Richard Jewell's not with us anymore. It can only take so much. And if the media doesn't get what it wants, it will destroy you. You just being a simple security guard that loves his job and wants to be a cop. You just John Q. Public out there. Or the president of the United States if they don't like the letter next to your name. If it's a D, you get away with everything and anything. Literally murder. But if you're a Republican, you are crucified for breathing air, for walking. Oh, look how he's walking. He's he's kind of kind of scooching along there. What's that gonna mean? The guy Biden fell upstairs three times in about four seconds. That's nothing to see here. So you gotta keep this in mind. Journalism died on February 27, 1968. Walter Cronkite led the charge and set the tone. Think about this. You have newspapers that are pretty much dead on the vine, but there are still some out there and most of them are online with very few print. But the National Enquirer is still in print. And we all used to make fun of it in the early 2000s and the 90s and the 80s. It was just garbage. You just go to the grocery checkout and you see the thing about something, aliens kidnapped Princess Diana and gave her two kids. You know, something stupid. Ooh. But they broke more stories in the last 15 years of honesty then all three of these meatheads combined. And now you got CNN, MSNBC, you know, Fox News comes up and tries to be the alternate, right? This is the first time anyone tried to be the alternate. Everyone was trying to get the same piece of pie and didn't realize there was a whole other slice over here. So Fox went for it. Now you got Newsmax and a couple other outfits out there. Listen to both. You'd be surprised at the same story of the words used and how the, it's presented. And I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of either because I think like a Fox News overcompensates when the left does what the left does. And I get why they do it, but they're not exactly 100% right. They may be 95% right or 80% right or whatever, but the left is about 20% right or less. It's not to tell you what's going on. It's to tell you what to think and how to vote and who to vote for and who to like and who to hate. It's a nightmare. You remember last week that I talked to you about Major League Baseball and Coca Cola, Delta Airlines. Where do these guys get off having an opinion? When, when, since when does corporate America dictate policy around here? So now we've evolved to that. We better keep an eye on them. Trust none of them. Decide for yourself. And maybe one day things will circle back. The people just go, it, it, it's going to become, if it isn't already, the media and journalism is basically the National Enquirer of the 80s. It is just ridiculous. To say the things that they say and do the things that they do for ratings and for public manipulation It's just beyond. And I know this goes on all across the world. And if it's just beginning to turn, this is where you're headed. Look at America, this is where you're headed. You need to stand up. You need to not support media by watching and reading their junk. If you think it's junk, Don't. Don't look at it. Don't buy it. Stay away from it. Drive them into the poorhouse. You see who sponsors their shows? Don't buy those products. Just don't. If the advertisers don't have the money to spend on a retarded show, the show goes away. But I hope that helped explain from my perspective when I mentioned the day journalism died back in 1968. You You can thank Walter Cronkite for where we are today. America's most trusted newsman. Good night and farewell. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Our Instagram page is at listen underscore up underscore America underscore. And our Facebook page is L U a podcast all together. L U a podcast on Facebook. So please join the community. Tell us what you think and uh, share with all your friends and let them know how awesome we are. Okay, guys, I want to give you an update and kind of give you some progress of where we're at. Up in Minneapolis, the George Floyd murder trial with Officer Derek Chauvin is taking place, and to say it's going well for the prosecution would be a lie. I watch the news and I read the articles that the left-wing media puts out there, and they're only telling you what they all want you to hear this is a slam dunk, that testimony was devastating, and all these kind of things. But if you watch it, if you see more than a 30-second clip, but you maybe take the entire context of the questioning, uh, which you can go online and watch, or you can just watch courts TV, this is, uh, at this point in time, the prosecution's calling witnesses. And the first thing that came up, and I mentioned this last week, was... uh, The judge in this case is really playing this one fast and loose. Now, when a trial takes place, the prosecution brings its evidence, and therefore the defense counters it with other experts or witnesses and whatnot to get a different verdict. The prosecution here started off with several witnesses, people that were there on the street filming and shouting Get off of them. Get off of them. They contributed nothing but reaction and their feelings and the emotions of it. There was one uh, older black gentleman who uh, they had to take several breaks. He just kept crying. And they were just asking, this is the prosecution, just asking him, you know, what did you see? What did you think? How did it make you feel? These questions were completely, they were challenged. And the judge says, no, I'm going to allow it. There's no relevance whatsoever on how a witness felt. Doesn't matter. It's not relevant to George Floyd, what he did in the store with the counterfeit money, how he was totally fine, got handcuffed, walked out. But as soon as he got put in the front seat, driver's side of the police car, he starts losing it. I can't breathe. He started it there. He's kicking and smashing around and don't shoot me. Don't kill me. My mama. I mean, just, he's, Getting beyond hysterical. And now, if it's just like, just chill right here and let's get all squared. And he won't chill. And because he's starting to injure himself and cause damage to the vehicle, they pull him out. And then you see the video, right? The only video they ever show you is he's on the ground, cops on his legs and his hips, and Chauvin is on his neck. Well, even in the prosecution's case, in the opening argument, said that his knee was on his back and his shoulders and then on his neck. So for the entire nine minutes there plus, this was not a knee to a throat or neck or anything like that. It was positioned, and as this guy was wiggling, moving around, knees move, he moves himself to try to get this guy to settle down. So they call on these witnesses, the prosecution does, and they just, all they contribute to this entire case is, well, I thought, he was racist. I thought it was over the top. It was excessive force and all this stuff. And they're sitting there going, but you're not an expert. You're just a schmuck with an iPhone. And he just did this to person after person after person. And the defense would come on and ask a couple of questions and you know, ask them if they had any background in such matters. If they'd be, and they'll, no, 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 no. So basically just, it was pandering for the media. Because remember, this is all televised and it was completely inappropriate, but there you go, the judge let it in. Now the prosecution has started calling on actual experts. So called on a detective in the department and asked questions. Is this okay? Is that okay? Is that how you would do it? Is that how we do it? No, 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 no. And he agreed. He's like, oh no, Chauvin bad, Chauvin bad, Chauvin bad. But that's interesting, because I know something that apparently only the defense knows that this own cop didn't know. So he brings out information. And he goes on the. This is the uh, Minneapolis Police Department training guide, right? Yes, it is. Okay, let's talk about that. And he's going through it, and he sits there and goes, points to the thing, the pictures and the article, and says, "Just read this." And he did this to the uh, Commissioner of uh, MPD as well. Same thing, because the Commissioner, this guy was out of control. And that's not how I do it. And it was excessive. I mean, he threw Chauvin completely under the bus. Now, when that happened, my first thought was, how is the entire MPD reacting, the street cops, to that? I mean, he was fired, but hey, an officer just like them just got completely thrown under bus by their boss. Don't be surprised if MPD, which has already had a lot of officers, retire early and just quit and move on somewhere else. It's gonna get even worse. So we sit here, and he's asking them about their training that they've received over their career. And he points to it, and he says, that move right there, the restraint one. He goes, yep. He goes, is that not what Chauvin did? He goes, yes, it is. He goes, so your apartment taught its officers how to do that. Yes, it did. Both of them answered these questions the same, by the way. So you've created a technique and a process to take care of someone, and this is the manner they are to do it. That is correct. Correct. So the feelings of this detective and the commissioner and the witnesses, they're hoping outweighs the facts. Chauvin didn't invent the move. He didn't study MMA and go, this is what I'm going to do. He was taught to do it. How could he be responsible then for anything if NPD is the one who told him how to do it and when to do it? Now, mind you, the city council of Minneapolis has given the George Floyd family $27 million in a settlement before the case even started. Yeah, that's not inappropriate at all, right? I mean, that couldn't, that couldn't convince people that weren't so sure or whatever before even hearing the facts. Like, well, if the city's given $27 million, he must be bad. Well, that was the plan. Try and create a toxic level of truth in his jury pool. So basically the prosecution has been delivering witnesses to help the defense. Now, there's something really interesting that has not and will not happen. And it's been talked about. And I don't know if you've heard about it, but I'm going to share it with you. So before the police arrived and uh, Floyd was arrested and all that, he was going back and forth and he was hanging out in this SUV Mercedes-Benz. Really nice, expensive car. And inside that car was a Maurice Hall. Maurice Hall is not on the uh, prosecution's witness list. You're like, well, who's Maurice Hall? Well, he's the owner of that Mercedes SUV. And George Floyd's girlfriend, who testified, said on the stand that George gets his drugs because the defense questioned her from Maurice Hall. He's the drug dealer. So we've got a drug dealer that the prosecution is not going to call. Now, keep in mind, this is very standard operating procedure kind of stuff for prosecutors and DAs. You can get a cooperating witness that is doing something illegal, like Maurice Hall, give him immunity for his testimony on what went down, but they won't call him. Now, Think about that. Why would you not call somebody that was right there and send him in? Well, by the girlfriend's own testimony, he was getting drugs from Maurice Hall, George Floyd was, at that time in the car before he went back in to give the $20 fake counterfeit bill, which then started the whole thing. They're not calling him. They're not giving him any nothing. This guy, Maurice Hall, knows what he did. And we're going to get into more information about what went on. Drug levels. So some doctors came out. And again, doctors coming off talking all emotional and the what ifs and might not and no ways. I mean, one doctor said there's no way that he died of anything but asphyxia. Now the corner report had it down for arteriosolotic and hypertensive heart disease, fentanyl intoxication, recent methamphetamine use, the cause of death from an independent autopsy was mechanical asphyxia. Of course it was. Didn't even include anything. Apparently they didn't run a drug panel or anything like that or uh, find out that the guy had uh, the heart of like a 90-year-old. As his own girlfriend stated, he's had problems with drugs for many, 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 many years. So we're sitting here and doctors are coming forward and they're, well, I feel, and like I said, they're just making excuses. And I said, I'm, so the defense, I'm sorry, I just want, Facts. Is it possible that his heart disease issues, the damage to his arteries and heart, contributed to his death? And every one of them said, yes. Is it possible that his use of methamphetamine and the levels that were found in his body could lead to his death? Yes. Would the combination of the two be a cause of his death? Yes. Now, the last thing, the uh, fentanyl, So they did the blood work on George Floyd. His fentanyl fentanyl levels, so it's like parts per million, right? He was like, if you're at 3.3 is the number for parts per million of fentanyl in your system, you are going to OD. George's was four times that, okay? So he didn't OD, but he OD'd like an elephant. Apparently, you know, you could tell his body has been do- doing this a long time. And I'm sure at some point he's building up some immunities. Kind of like, you know, you drink a 12-pack, you're hammered. But if you've been drinking a 12-pack every day for 10 years, you know, it's going to take four 12-packs to put you away. So we asked, with these things being the case, would that much fentanyl in his system kill him? Yes. Every one of them said yes. Then he was, they was asked again, if his heart condition, methamphetamine levels, fentanyl levels. If all that at the same time, would that have possibly killed him? And could it? And the answer, per doctor, everyone asked, yes. And that's it. So we're at this point. The prosecution is delivering the defense everything it needs to get this guy acquitted. Like I said, did he have him on the ground too long? Probably. I think he used a pretty good chance with all the drugs he had in his system, he dies in the next 10 minutes anyway because of the stress he's putting on himself. Remember, now Floyd is freaking out. That's why he got pulled out of the car. So he's raising his blood pressure. His heart is pumping, but it can't pump because of the damage. The drugs are doing their part. And I said, I don't do drugs, never done drugs, You know, not even a hit on a joint. My closest been a contact high at a concert. That's it. So I I can't speak only on what I've read, what I've seen, and what a common sense person would go and conclude that if you do that to yourself, your chances of survival are being cut down dramatically. Could he have survived? Sure. Could he have died? Being let up at three minutes? Yes. And these are the questions they're asking. Could he have died? Yes. That was the answers from experts. So basically the prosecution is praying that the media can just keep filling the airwaves with nonsense so that your handful of BLM activists that I told you last week, or if he doesn't get a conviction, we will burn. And I believe him, but that's not the reason to convict a man. He's been fired and he likely will never be a policeman ever again. Okay. then find something else, but he's not guilty of murder in any degree. Bad judgment, maybe going a little too long. But George Floyd, in my opinion, based on the evidence that's been given to this point, George Floyd killed George Floyd. And they aren't going to call him Reese Hall because it's just going to affirm the defense. You have to you have to really think about that. Now, I'm going to share something else with you. There was another shocker in this discovery. So as they're talking, the prosecution calls, like, the CSI guys of... MPD in the county and ask them about Chauvin's cruiser, his car. And when they put him in the front and put it in the whole thing, the car is evidence now. So it's been impounded. It's been sitting there. And six months into it, the defense comes out and says, Hey, I got questions for you. Why did you not really process the inside of the car? They're like, Well, what do you mean? He says, There's nothing in your report about this. Now there's photographs they show. He goes, What is that? He goes, Well, it looks like pills. He says, and these are your photographs, but you didn't do any testing on what that is. We did. The defense did do testing on what was on the ground of the floor of the police cruiser where George Floyd sat. What was it? Fentanyl, meth, pills. They were partially chewed. And when they swabbed it, guess whose DNA was all over it? At the time of arrest, George Floyd had drugs in his mouth. And when he was losing it and having his freak out, he spits them out, whatever, they fall out, they're on the floor. And MPD did not log it as evidence. Just, we'll just pretend nothing to see here. But the defense goes, what is this? And they told him. He goes, this is a report. Are you familiar with it? "Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Talk to me about it, let's go. And he went through it. And they admitted that what was found inside the car was more meth that was laced with fentanyl pills that were probably given to him by a certain Maurice Hall. Just saying, he hasn't been on the stand, so we don't know for sure, but you can kind of put one plus one and you still know it's two. That's the reality of what's going on, big picture. But CBS, NBC, ABC, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times, everything out there. Nobody is telling you any of this. Manipulate the news. Tell the story you want told to create the reaction you want. The media wants this country to burn. More chaos. Trump's fault. Trump's nowhere near any of this, by the way. It wasn't then, it wasn't now. But it will be his fault. Just watch. Social justice. They want to hang a man for doing what he's told to do. You don't like it? You should teach them other ways. Throwing him out with the dirty water like the police commissioner did? How stupid do you think he feels right now? His entire department thinks he's a scumbag traitor. They're going to leave because they're not going to work for a guy like that. Their CSI just ignored the drugs on the ground. and found out, well, it's got DNA on it. Oh yeah, it was in his mouth. This is all very much called evidence. And that's how trials are decided is the Evidence, not the feelings, not the I thinks, and not the conjecture, not the emotion. Facts. Remember, media doesn't like facts. They don't talk about those anymore. I think, I feel, that's wrong. I hate. All those things. That's what that's all about. So that's the update on the Chauvin trial. I'm telling you right now, I'm calling my shot. The trial's going to happen, and then a verdict will be given. It won't matter what the verdict is. But if the verdict is found not guilty or isn't up to the standard of which people on the left and BLM think it should be, they're going to torch Minneapolis. Remember, they've built, by the way, like five blocks around the courthouse, concrete barriers and fence and all that stuff around to keep people out. Walls are bad, but they're good there. They keep people out. Oh, walls keep people out. The, the walls in D.C. are still up. Still up, but the border, that's bad. BLM will not be happy because most likely in the next week or two, the jury is going to come back and uh, dollars to donuts. We're looking at a hung jury and violence on the streets will make last summer just look like the 4th of July. It will be very bad. And a lot of people are going to get hurt and a lot of people are going to die all because they're being lied to. And they're believing everything the media says, which is the opposite of what I've just given you, which are the facts. I didn't make it up. This is what they said. This was the reaction. I gave you the information that if we're going to share it, that's what you have to share. I don't care what you think or what you saw. I saw the video. The knee was on the shoulders, the back, and the neck, per the prosecution. He said that. So prepare yourself, because no matter the outcome, it's going to be horrible. And Chauvin and the rest of the, you know, cops in general, it's going to get bad for them. And if you're a member of the law enforcement community, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for your family that you and your partners and your friends and your coworkers all come home safe every night. That's all I ever want. But this uh, this coming month or two, it's going to be ugly, and I guarantee Biden will not do anything but let it burn. He'll just throw more gasoline on that fire. He will not deploy troops to stop this stuff right off the bat. That will not happen. He'll go on, and he'll say it was a miscarriage of justice. They got it wrong. Now, remember, he's not on the case, jury, not watching any of this. The guy's taking naps all day. He doesn't have time for it. But he will speak out like he's the foremost authority, and he will throw nothing but gasoline on this fire, and we are all going to pay for it. That's a wrap for this week's episode. Be the peace. Don't let emotion get the best of you. Remember, you are the resistance. God bless you, your family, and America.